Uh, all right. So welcome to the uh, Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit, Session 13. Uh, this time we are finishing up the second half of Chapter 11, Corporate Structure and its Quantification. Uh, so we are going to finish off the corporate structure part uh, and then move on to the quantification part. Uh, so the as for the corporate structure part, uh, we made it to the notes on the divisional role in corporate organization uh, last time, and we discussed the first of three points uh, that bring that beer brings up. Uh, so you have uh, operate within the intention of the whole organism, uh, which we covered last time. Now the second one is operate within the coordinating framework of system two. And the third is submit to the automatic control of system three itself. Uh, so any thoughts on point two operate within the coordinating framework of system two? Uh, we've got Shane. Go ahead. It's interesting that uh, Beer points out here that in, I think in his experience, one of the troubles with this is that it's very hard to get these um leaders of the system one units to submit to the authority of a relatively junior system like system two like it's it's easy to get them to kneel at the throne of system five but um these like system two coordinating functions are relatively junior and it's quite quite hard to convince these folks to um in in this like corporate business uh, structure with its petty fiefdoms very hard to get them to submit to a basic coordinating infrastructure yeah so beer says um in practice, the divisional chief executive must be dedicated to the effective running of his organization, or sorry, of his division, as if his division were expected to overthrow the others in the competition for capital, for example. Uh, it follows that a measure of control must be vested in a corporate regulatory center uh, charged with the effective, with affecting the purposes of system two. So danger points, uh, Again, it's the duality of the roles within System 1 and System 5. Um, and he says, to accept the regulatory action of a relatively junior control echelon at the corporate center is, in psychological terms this time, anathema. It is bad enough, feels the divisional ch chief executive, to accept instructions from above uh, system 5, given that this same man is party to such policy formulating in his other role. But the System 2 regulatory action is nothing more nor less than gross interference by people who do not know what they are talking about. Unless this problem can be overcome, then cybernetics safely predicts that the organization will go into a dramatic oscillation. So this idea that Beer mentions here uh, is something I wasn't really aware of before. Uh, that um, a measure of control must be vested in a corporate regulatory center charged with affecting the purposes of System 2. Now, he says to look at figure 27 here, uh, and you can see on there is the corporate regulatory center, uh, but unfortunately that diagram is not labeled with which system each one belongs to. Uh, I think that's so System 2. It's System it's like 2. It's, it's part of system, of system two. two. Top it's of like system very, two. Yeah, it, it's like the top of the spinal column, or like um, so. Like on on the right hand side of the diagram, um, you have the triangle bits, which are kind of like 
um, the, the the ganglia that are off the, off the side of the spinal column, and they're yeah. they're like the, the coupling from system one to system two in the particular. But yeah. then the corporate regulatory center is like system two in the general. It's like yeah. you know the nervous system at large, and it's like yeah. Um, so it's, I, I think I would think of it as like the very top of the spinal column and the, and the bottom of the the brainstem. Uh, right. And then the operations directorate would be system three, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the development director would be system four. Uh, okay. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Um, cause we usually think about system two as like peer to peer coordination, but, uh, actually Beer suggests that an operations directorate is necessary, or sorry, a, uh, a coordination corporate regulatory center, corporate regulatory center is necessary. Well, I guess it's it is peer to peer largely, but there's like a kind of um, some degree of like it, it's kind of like you know in a peer to peer network, the network is an entity, you know. Yeah. It's um, so there's there's a sort of like um, the, the the sum of all peer to peer interactions, or like the policy of the peer to peer interactions, would be a kind of system two quasi authority, but it doesn't have it doesn't seem to have the solid existence uh, that, that that systems three, four, and five have. Okay, well, well, we'll see what he says in the rest of the book. Um, so let's let's go to some other people here. Uh, Matt, uh, Brett, Jeremy, and then Jake H. Yeah, uh, with uh, um, yeah, like people, you know, kind of not wanting to um, submit to, to System Two. Uh, I maybe think of how you know I, when I think of uh, um, you know, like System Twos that uh, you know easily come to mind. You know, a lot of them are just automated, like Jira. Or um, uh, um, you know, like, like in People's Republic of Walmart, you know, when they talk about the uh, the automated inventory management systems, it's you know, it's, it's something that you know, like you you can't actually argue with it, you know, or like maybe you can like raise some kind of algodonic alert, but you know, like it's actually hard to do that, you know, it's it's a fait, it's it's a fait accompli, like like you can't really negotiate. Right. So perhaps engineering around that problem uh, by making it uh, a rather obstinate machine, you know. If we're looking at this from a Marxist perspective, we need to look at attempted communist and socialist revolutions and what happened there. And to me, when I look at this description of coordinating system twos, who was like in the US, in Russia, in the Russian Empire, Russian Empire was completely massive. It was the largest physical territory in the world and basically run by bureaucrat logistics where there was a bureaucratic caste. There was a 14-step ranking system that basically weeded out around loyalty to the czar. And ultimately, most intellectuals washed out of that system because it was designed to wash them out. Um, And then you have you know, the Communist Party or the Bolshevik Party stepping in to all of these places, but understanding that the logistics were so complicated, they needed to keep the old networks of forest bureaucracy and to sort of modify, Bolshevize them. And you get this sense, the whole idea of resenting newbies coming in and telling people what to do was a huge part of bureaucratic, massive bureaucratic failures in the 20s because you'd get these very well-read, nerdy bullshies 
making their way to Omsk or Magnitogorsk and having everyone being like, you are stupid. You do not understand our world. And then just, you know, <laughs> everything just sort of falling apart. I think the Soviets never really got a handle on that. And especially, you know, the Chinese situation was a little bit different, but you look at the Great Leap Forward and you see another example of attempts to throw in a system two process just colossally failing. Right. Uh, this is a very important point. Because um, as we sort of seen earlier in the text, it's perfectly uh, understandable and expected that you are going to get this kind of resistance whenever you make change in an organization. Um, so have to accept it's going to happen. Uh, okay, let's go back to Brett and then to Jake H. Can you hear me now? It's better? Okay. Um, so what I was saying is I feel like if you automate too much of System 2 or you try to do the wrong solution to System 2, you get the problem that was also mentioned in People's Republic of Walmart, where you've just got markets and you literally have the the, the, the company competing against itself to just like basically eat itself up, which is what which is what Beer is saying here. Is like if you've got like if you're competing for other resources with other firms, like it's just gonna eat itself up. Right, right, uh, indeed. Uh, so yeah, that that system that Sears impl implemented was just catastrophically bad. Uh, so let's go to Jake H. Yeah, I think um, I definitely like the, the question of like, how how do you get the system one to kind of obey the commands of system two? Or like, I don't know, maybe that's too, uh, too like harsh a word or whatever, but like be influenced by uh, is I think a really important question. And maybe, maybe it'll be answered a bit more in the next chapter. Uh, maybe just getting more of a sense of like what, in practice those systems look like but i, I think because yeah I, I think it's this very like I don't, I don't know if it's just capitalist or if it's like a holdover from feudalism and all those other things of just like this idea of like well what we have here is working for us so therefore why should we need to change it you know and i think that maybe requires just more buy-in requires kind of a better understanding of the whole picture i guess which maybe speaks to kind of the idea of what's sort of been thrown around a little bit on the discord of like getting people to be able to shuffle between the different systems and not like specific not specify as those to like a specific person um because like if the system one if the people kind of in the in the system five of the system one are also have some overlap with the system two it i think i think he's saying that before like it kind of it can it can work better than you might expect it to work just because the there's able to be that crosstalk that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so I think it's pretty interesting. And, and also definitely like, yeah, he talks about like the psychological effect of that, like not letting someone else tell you what to do with like what's yours or what they have control over, I suppose, is, is <laughs> definitely something yeah, like that that has been a problem with all previous attempts at socialism and communism. And I, I think technology could be a way out of it, not necessarily like totally automating system two, but just like having those automated controls to like make it a little easier for someone to like understand why the system two is saying do this thing or understand like understand that there's no like person in system two who's trying to like take over the role of the person who's or the people who are in control, nominally control of the system one, you know, making it more of like 
well, you're part of this larger structure and therefore like it's in your best interest to do this. Uh, and I just thought Scott had anything about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably useful to have the um, system to algodonics uh, sort of graphically represented for everyone um, so that you can like they can kind of see where the stress points are happening in the overall system. Um, and it's not just someone using uh, bureaucratic uh, advantage to uh, browbeat them into doing something that doesn't make sense. Um, Rudy, you had something to say? I'll pass. Okay. Um, so we'll move on then. Uh, so, yeah, again, this is uh, a point that Beer brings up, offers a kind of a solution, but we're going to need to see what exactly he expects out of this um, uh, regulatory center, the corporate regulatory center um, in further work. Uh, okay, so we move on to point three. Uh, submit to the automatic control of system three itself. The internal homeostasis of the corporation is not simply a matter of preventing oscillation, which is a system two undertaking. If corporate synergy is to be achieved at all times, which is to say throughout current operations, then sometimes the needs of one division must be sacrificed not to the needs of the corporation, which is another point dealt with under System 5, but explicitly to the needs of other divisions. The difficulties implicit here are well exemplified in many large organizations by the problem of transfer prices. Um, so this is going to be kind of like if you have an internal market inside your corporation, uh, what prices are set to uh, exchange goods between divisions. Um, it follows from this objectively, quote unquote, obvious constraint that a division may even be asked by the others to go into liquidation. Why not? It may well be inimical to the optimal behavior of other divisions simply as a matter of practical day-to-day -day operations and regardless of the role of such a maverick division in a perfectly viable long-term corporate plan. There is a conflict of values here which can be resolved in logic only at the top. Um, okay, so anything to say about uh, point three, the automatic control system three? Uh, Shane, go ahead. This notion of uh, like liquidating one of the system ones kind of reminded me of when we had that discussion with Lumio and they were saying that they, I mean, they're, they're an example probably of, of the good version of this, like a, a healthy version of this where, you know, they would do their collective planning and decide to take a punt on a project and they would give it a month or two months or, or, or whatever to see if it pans out. And then if it doesn't pan out, they can, you know, discuss and decide, okay, we'll, we'll just shut that down and do something else. And because Lumio has that kind of, uh, rather healthy kind of horizontal structure where nobody's, nobody's like um, livelihood is really at stake from that liquidation, that then becomes possible to just shut down a project and shift the resources around, hopefully without anyone's egos getting too bruised in the, in, in the process. Um, I think they're a pretty, pretty good example of that in a positive sense. 
Yeah, they talked about how, uh, you know, there needs to be that material support for people shifting their, their priorities. But there also needs to be a certain amount of emotional maturity among workers in abandoning work uh, when the priorities of the organization shift. Um, so this would be like if uh, in the course of a sprint, it becomes obvious that one uh, task is not contributing to the overall sprint goals, then people need to be able to drop that task even if um, even if they've invested a lot of time and energy in making sure it's good work. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the quality of the work. It has to do with the coherence of the project. Um, okay, so we'll go to Jake and then back to Shane. Yeah, I think, like, speaking on this, I think it's, yeah, it definitely does speak to emotional maturity, like, and just, like, willingness to, like, set aside maybe whatever personal feelings you had of, like, investing in the project. But just, like, thinking about, like, ways that projects or system ones, whatever, can kind of be, like, put on hold in a way or put into kind of a more of a stasis than into, like, complete liquidation is, I think, uh, one uh, way around it. But, like, that, that's helpful, I think, for people who have put, like, put time into something. I'm just thinking about, like, in terms of an example for my own organization, like, we set up a mutual aid project when COVID started. Now that things are, aren't as bad, and, I mean, I would say that government stepped in a little bit, but it hasn't really stepped in at all. But just, like, the economy is opening up a little bit, so it's less, the needs are different, and they're shifting, and so we don't do it the same way because the material conditions have changed. And I think that's, like, you know, a, a testament, I think, to how we're able to shift that. But just, like, it can be done in a way that doesn't require, like, all this work that you put into it, no longer applicable, but just, like, have the skeleton around and ready to go back up again if the needs exist again, as I think. Um, like, I don't think it needs to, not everything needs to be completely liquidated. Obviously, it's can be different when you talk about, like, a company where it's just, it's just much easier to just have that top-down, like, okay, we're not putting the money into this thing anymore, but it's more of, like, a volunteer basis than it, it can be done in a different way, I guess. Um. Well, I think Beer here is talking about the extreme case, right, where it is appropriate to completely liquidate the system one. Uh, but that's really the extreme case. It's it's not necessarily the regular case. Uh, it's just kind of the one that would be the most provocative uh, and uh, uh, generating conflict. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair, though. Like, it's always good to first keep in mind, like, should these operations just be scaled back? Should they be rescheduled? Should they be modified before saying, like, let's just cut the whole division? Um, for sure. For sure. Uh, OK, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, Jake's example was actually was actually really good there, right? That like that's a healthy way of doing it, where the material conditions change, and you decide you, you like examine the evidence. And it's like okay, we we don't we don't need to do that anymore, or we don't need to do it to the same degree. So we put this on ice or whatever. Um, in ter in terms of that kind of like social socialist organizing stuff, we can also imagine like the the pathological cases where um, 
institutions or organizations kind of refuse to stand down, like, you know, union apparatus that ends up opposing socialism or like working against the, the workers, because if, um, you know, if full communism was achieved, they would, their, they would, their jobs would be irrelevant or their, their positions of prestige would be irrelevant. And this is, the, this is the tension of the, um, interaction between the systems one and the system three, right? That like, because each of the system one units are autopoetic viable systems, they have, a you know, a, a self-perpetuating loop because they have to, right? If they're, if they're autopoetic, they have to have some drive to, to self-perpetuate. But they also do need to submit to a higher collective authority that can rule on whether that system needs to exist anymore, like, and, or, or whether it's an obstruction, perhaps, to the, the greater, the greater good. And yeah, I think we just touch back on the Lumio thing. Like, it's, it's a really good example of how if you, decouple people's material interests like their 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 wage or their livelihood from their membership in any particular system it becomes much easier to to be able to just shut down a project without chucking someone out on the streets at the same time yeah definitely and that's been uh for a long time uh one of the arguments in favor of socialism uh which is that it's easier to move people around without causing uh huge distress and disruption in their lives. Um, uh, right. And, you know, we can see examples like this where, for example, like, oh, maybe the cop unions need to be kicked out of the AFL-CIO. Uh, but that's really hard to do because they're uh, a very uh, large um, unionized group. Uh, and... Uh, they do have their own divisional autonomy within that organization. Um, so uh, now we'll get on to the danger point for this, which is uh, considerably longer than the others. Um, so he says, uh, however, I say again, however, the very possibility that this demand for dissolution or contraction might happen to any division of the corporation constitutes an omnipresent threat in the minds of many divisional directorates. They therefore act as if they were threatened with extinction and become aggressive to fellow divisions when all the evidence shows that they ought to be cooperative. It seems ironic that we should say we cannot discuss the division because it is no more nor, no, uh, nor less than the whole in microcosm, and then go on to say many things about the divisional role in the enterprise. So this is getting back to that general character of the VSM. Um, the reason for this apparent inconsistency is the chief lesson worth learning, and it emerges from the notes under each of the three danger point headings above. To the divisional chief executive and his divisional directorate, it is always true that things are not what they seem. This is essentially because of the duality of roles on which comment has already been passed. But even if we were to forbid divisional chiefs from participating in corporate endeavors, the result would be the same. This draws attention to a weakness in our model. The units of the body politic are themselves self-conscious. Therefore, even if the people concerned at the divisional level are excluded, quite formally, from corporate management, Nothing on earth can prevent them from deliberating on the nature and behavior of the corporation as such. It is as if the heart were given a little mind of its own, 
with which to ask whether the whole body were behaving so badly that it, the heart, might end up with coronary thrombosis. Just think of what a threat this suspicion would constitute to the heart as a major organ of the body. Before long, it would come to suspect the liver and the kidneys of unthinkable, unthinkable perfidy, whereas those blameless organs were without fault in submitting to the three constraints constituting their own autonomic limitation. This is a thought-provoking reflection. The psychiatric problems of organs endowed with self-consciousness would be legion. Thus, in some ways, our liberal-minded and culturally sophisticated attempts to involve divisional managements more and more in corporate policies may be asking for trouble. But please do not take the remark too seriously. Given that divisional directorates comprise people, there is probably no doubt that maximum participation offers the best solution. If these head scratchings reveal anything at all, it is that participatory management, divisional vis-a-vis -vis corporate, may raise more problems than it solves, and does, at the very least, depend heavily on the full-time awareness of all concerned that their roles are indeed dual. This means that what the cortex self-consciously knows may be death to the autonomic system, a most, uh, uh sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> this means that what the cortex self-consciously knows may be death to the autonomic system, a most unphysiological state of affairs. Um, all right, so any comments on this section, the contradictions of self-conscious organs? Uh, Jake H, go ahead. Yeah, this is definitely like, like him finally admitting like, well, maybe it's not fully one-to-one -one with the body, but, you know, there's still some, some value in that. And I think it's definitely like, gets to that kind of recursiveness of the VSM, like that each of these parts aren't just like, they're not just automatons. They're like their own self-contained kind of viable systems. And therefore they might have different like meta, uh, different ideas about how uh, things should be run. And, um, and yeah, I think I definitely, I like what he says about uh, that, the more participation, the better, even though this, this might raise a whole new set of concerns and maybe it wouldn't be good in the way that we think it should be good. But I think like ultimately, if we want a socialist society, if we want a communist society, like we're going to have to take on those, the problems that come with having a lot of people involved with making a lot of the decisions in society. And I think like that ultimately is like, those are the growing pains, right? That we're going to have to go through as we transfer, as we transition from capitalism to like a new form of society. Um, but I think, I think also like, like people now, you know, don't want necessarily to be involved with every decision-making process. Like even just like, like I'm my own struggles in trying to increase participation in, in our organization of just like people that don't want to have to check their check websites every, every few days to make sure they're on top of decisions that need to be made. Like, People just want to know, like, okay, I don't have to think about this, and, like, it'll get done. And I think that's fine, um, but I think also it's worth thinking about, like, what can be done to, like, not allow for, like, passive participation, because that's kind of already there, but just, like, allow for active participation in a way that doesn't require, like, a huge amount of thoughts and energy and, like, that kind of anxiety that some people can get of, like, oh, well, I've got this, like, I've got a notification waiting for me. I'm not going to open up 
the notification because I don't want to have to think about what I have to do when I realize what it's. So it's like, I don't know a great way around that, but it's definitely something to, to think about. And uh, I like that you're just raising these points because they're important. Definitely. Um, yeah, we can see that, like, uh, in some ways, the kind of dictatorial management style actually uh, more closely approximates the body uh, because it organizes people in the way that it tries to suppress their capacity for autonomous thinking about the organization. Now, of course, it's not <laughs> successful <laughs> entirely doing that because people are still people, as Beer is saying here. Uh, but, you know, this thing where every organ of the body is a thinking organ uh, and that being a potential problem uh, is sort of a problem that, like, management, conventional management theory intuits and, and tries to suppress. Um, so th that is a very interesting point. And I, it's like, you know, that way in which beer is kind of both analogizing between the body and the organization and then also trying to qualify those analogies um, in terms of the ways that that doesn't make sense. Uh, it leads to a pretty tricky understanding. Uh, okay, Brett, go ahead. But I'd argue, I'd even argue though that metaphor does make sense because it can happen that the body does things that are against the nature of the what the body is like. It doesn't have the organs do operate independently of each other, and that can cause problems. Um, and thinking about that in terms of, of like what sort of messaging we can have to make sure that doesn't happen, right? Because it is very top down, but it's also organs still can do their own thing. And I would love for my brain to be able to tell my body to say, "Hey, stop growing bone there," <laughs> but it's not going to work. There's just no way to do that uh, internally, at least. Yeah, it's not it's not that uh, organs have a certain degree of autonomy that's the issue that Beer's pointing to. It's that people have a holistic conception of the organization in a way that organs don't. Um, I think that's what he's getting at, because he does acknowledge that, like, yeah, organs have autonomy and they're going to lead into conflict with each other. That's part of the body. That's part of physiology. The thing that organs don't have is like their own brain uh, that allows them to to build a sort of holistic picture. Um, Shane, go ahead. Or even just mess it back and forth with each other. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think this this reminds me of a point I think I raised maybe a couple of sessions ago that there's like um, as we go up to the layers of emergence of um, like biological systems and organic systems and so on there, there's there's this repetition of control structures but a very a sort of escalation in degrees of self-reflexivity that you know the, the organs are somewhat self-reflexive there they have internal control structures to keep their own maintenance and then you get to the level of the organism but then when you get up to like social organisms and social systems that organisms participate in each unit participates in many systems in a way that a heart doesn't. Like a, a heart doesn't jump between bodies in the same way that a person jumps between vital systems. Like if a person is in a family and works two jobs, at a minimum they're in three things that would qual qualify as a viable system. And their self-reflexivity 
gives them the gives us the ability to compare notes across these systems and to see and observe things in ways that the organs of the body or even the cells can't do. So I think that like the 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 difference in degree of reflexivity gives rise to a difference in kind at this kind of at this kind of level where I think and I think what 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 Stafford is kind of t- talking around here is that the analogy kind of starts to break down because of that um, difference in kind. That there, there is there is something that social organisms can do that cells and organs can't. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, Lumio ha- gives a really interesting example, or not Lumio, I'm sorry, in Spiral, gives a really interesting example of killing one of its own system ones with the uh, workspace, the... Um, they uh, they had a uh, co-working space, and they got rid of it. And they got rid of it because collectively they all decided that the job of maintaining a co-working space sucked and they didn't like it. And um, I think one thing that helps is everyone being conscious of being part of System 5. If you have a situation where people are shut out of System 5 completely and then System 5 liquidates their division, they're incredibly intensely upset and angry about it because they see it as unjust. That one of the ways you fix this is train everybody in the system to understand they're going to be wearing multiple hats on the one hand and on the other hand, letting them know that these sort of liquidations aren't going to result in them being out of the out of the company or out of the system. I have a friend who was unemployed for a very long time, and he finally got a contract gig. And three weeks later, it was just liquidated. It was incredibly frustrating. It took him another two years. He finally got one. And earlier this week, he was really upset because it turned out that his project was being terminated early. And then he just posted on Facebook joyously yesterday that the group he joined pays everyone full-time wages until they can get them back on another project. He'd never heard of that even being a thing. Couldn't have imagined that he was in such a system. And so he was terribly, terribly upset. And then once he found out that he was going to be spending the next N weeks doing python training while waiting for the next gig he was delighted and there's no reason we couldn't set up work that way it just there's really no reason i mean people you know any hr director is going to just you know bloviate about how important human capital is but human capital actually is really really important and you know it would be very easy to imagine a system where you you remain part of the organization and something like redundancy of a particular project doesn't factor into that. Yeah, I mean, uh, unemployment insurance is supposed to kind of fulfill that role in a sense between organizations, but it's very, uh, very partially applied. And it never really provides a real sense of security. Um, uh, just an aside about N-Spiral, um, 
the Enspiral Dev Academy, where I met uh, the Lumio people for the interview, um, is mainly like a kind of uh, hacker camp. Um, that's its main function. Uh, but it also functions as a co-working space that Lumio works in uh, and they have meeting rooms and stuff in there. So even though that system one was liquidated, uh, it was sort of later rolled into another uh, function, uh, which is which is kind of interesting. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's it can be a kind of in and out process um, over time. Uh, all right. So let's, let's, let's move on then. Um, so we, uh, are now looking at, uh, the second section of the chapter, uh, notes on the measures of achievement. So this, uh, second section of the chapter is largely disconnected from the first. Um, but, uh, maybe we can draw some connections between them. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> uh, first of all, Buer says, uh, the dynamics of this whole structure depend on the quantification of its performance. Hitherto, businesses used the measure of money, cost, and sales price, the direction and rate of cash flow. Thus, we have come to identify the quantification of business activity and the corporations we already know with the cost accounting function. This is because cost accountancy provides a lingua franca by which the disparate activities of unlike divisions may be compared and aggregated. So this is, of course, the classic uh, Austrian school point about the coordinating role of money. Um, uh, there is no reason why this should be so beyond its historicity and alleged familiarity. So Beer is contesting this point. Um Secondly, insofar as there is an observable trend in the corporations we already know, it is towards the construction of massive databases within divisional centers on which it is claimed corporate management will be able to draw for every purpose under heaven. This development has been attacked in previous chapters from many angles. People are already finding it inoperable and certainly uneconomic. But the most important argument against the approach is that it rides on hidden premises about computational capabilities which cannot be fulfilled, as was argued in Chapter 3. Then what should we do? From the corporate standpoint, divisional performance is about both short-term and long-term viability. The notion that cost should be minimized or profit maximized within a fixed epoch leaves right out of the count other factors which are vital to the future viability of the business contained within the division. They are the latent capabilities of the firm, which may be built up and metabolized by wise management or squandered recklessly by stupid management, without in either case procuring a change which is reflected in costings. For costings are short-term control instruments and will not detect the mismanagement of latent resources. By definition, this mismanagement will not be detected until it is too late, though uh, through the financial accounts, no doubt, although it is happening now and ought to be checked. We need a measure of achievement which is both less loaded in terms of the emotional appeal of profits and which is also more comprehensive in terms of the real resources at risk. 
the measure must nonetheless be expressed in a common metric for the whole corporation. If money is not the unit, then we must think in terms of pure numbers. Um, there is a classic measure of productivity which can be extended. It expresses the ratio of what is possible to what is actual. Thus, if a typist could type 100 pages in a given time, but types only 50, then her productivity over the, court, uh, over the period is clearly one half. 0 0.5 is a pure number. Now we may deal with the problem of incorporating latent resources by a slight elaboration of this theme, which requires us to identify three rather than two levels of achievement. They are actuality, uh, this is simply what we are managing to do now with existing resources under existing constraints. Capability, this is what we could be doing still right now with existing resources under existing constraints if we really worked at it. And potentiality, this is what we ought to be doing by developing our resources and removing constraints, although still operating within the bounds of what is already known to be feasible. It would help a lot to fix these definitions clearly in the mind. Uh, so any, anything to say about uh, this section? Uh, Shane, go ahead. Um, I think my first remark is that the, the connection between these halves is that the whole chapter is about system one and that in these capitalist firms, the, the those three points we just covered, like, you know, operating within the intention of the organism, uh, coordinating with other sub units and whatever the fuck the third point was, they are all related to performance. Like performance is the way or the, this, you know, measures of achievement are the way by which the, um, the rest of the system would determine whether those three points are being met. Um, anyway, on the content of the actual thing though, that I think this, this like three levels of achievement is really interesting. And it's, it's this step beyond, uh, like capitalist investment. Right, where you just have this like constant grind to move actuality towards capability, right? Like that, just just pure productivity. Um, introducing the third term, though, and especially like it's a third term that is what we ought to be doing, which is a kind of collective, ethical, and uh, you know, socially determined sort of objective. That's the that's the step beyond capitalist investment circuits towards something that's much more. Uh, kind of socially ambitious and isn't just a, a kind of blind repetition function of, of reinvestment and, and grinding on productivity. Uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say, like, sure, this felt disjoint from while I was reading this chapter, but like, as soon as we get into the next chapter, it becomes very clear what this stuff is, because these are the quite literally and as simply like the outputs of system one, like mathematically speaking. And it sort of gets to just my general comments about how he describes this is he has such a tendency to go into the to long verbose explanations of this stuff when it's like it's right there just to identify these concepts with the like the numbers and the math that are actually laid on top of all of these diagrams. And, you know, I, I assume other people have done it since. I don't know. But, um, you know, certainly as we get into the next chapter where we're really talking about how the math works and he hints at it, it's like, oh, here's a Gaussian probability distribution and you want to look at statistical significance, but it's just like, well, put it on the diagram or make it more explicit than how, how that works. And I think this here is like, oh, I forgot we need to define the actual terms that are coming out of system one. 
So I talked about system one and then, you know, this is, this is the output, but he weirdly just never really says it in a direct way. And it took to the next chapter to, to figure that out. Right. Um, so for myself, I think the thing that really sticks out to me is like, he asserts that, uh, productivity is a um, commensurate value uh, between different kinds of work. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to what extent that's true. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Um, it's just uh, certainly a controversial statement um, that he's making here about planning, uh, where um, many people would disagree with him on that. Uh, now, uh, Jeremy uh, and then Rudy, go ahead. I didn't get the sense that productivity is ratios between different things, but productivity is ratios inside the same metric. So um, if you have a list of 14 things that you're measuring, for each thing, you're coming up with three scalers. There's a yep. actuality scaler, a capability scaler, and a potentiality scaler. So I got the sense that these ratios are ratios within each measured quantity rather than across different ones. Uh, that's true in the first instance, but he does say the measure must nonetheless be expressed in a common metric for the whole corporation. Uh, so um, he says in terms of pure numbers. So, you know, I don't think this is necessarily untrue so long as like, the formulation of the metrics is um, worked out through the cooperation of many people uh, taking in the situation of the corporation. Because I, I, I'm not a Hayekian in that way. Like I don't, I don't think that it can only really happen behind people's backs in sort of an unconscious way. Um, I, I think Neurath was more correct on this point. Uh, but the fact that um, beer is using sort of like idiosyncratic productivity metrics that are set by individual system ones, um, as opposed to using like labor time as a common metric, um, is really interesting to me. I, I, I don't know if it works or not, but it's, it's really interesting as like a kind of like more rich uh, metric or uh, sort of met, uh, system of metrics uh, than what you might get with simply labor time accounting. Uh, Rudy, go ahead. Yeah, I was actually going to talk a bit about that, but I think he just hits all the main points. So I'm going to pass. Okay, <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> okay, all right, let's 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 move on then. Uh, so we've got the three metrics. Um now, of course, we may project our future plans on the basis of any one of these notions of achievement, 
or indeed have three sets of plans which separately employ these three criteria. Again, it will pay to assimilate the following definitions. Planning on the basis of actuality, I call programming. Planning on the basis of capability, I call planning by objectives. Planning on the basis of potentiality, I call normative planning. The first of these is simply a program because it accepts the inevitable shortcomings of the situation and does not admit that anything can imminently be done about them. Programming is a tactical ruse. We move to genuine planning only when we set new objectives and try to achieve them. This is the strategic planning level. So, you know, obviously Beer's uh, military background coming in here with the difference between tactics and strategy. Um, normative planning sets potentiality as its target and incurs major risks and penalties, although it also offers major and perhaps decisive benefits. But however we plan, what really matures is always called actuality, and the measures of achievement proposed relate capability and potentiality to whatever may be actual at the time. Here are some more definitions. Productivity is the ratio of actuality and capability. Latency is the ratio of capability and potentiality. Uh, and performance is both the ratio of actuality and potentiality and also the product of latency and productivity. Uh, okay, so actuality over potentiality and also the product of latency and productivity. Okay, um, these relationships are laid out in figure 28 which is fortunately a much better diagram than 27. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the behavior of ratios is a strange phenomenon, and figure 28 repays a good deal of contemplation. If full achievement is to be read as unity, that is 100%, the smaller of the two raw measures must always be the numerator and the larger the denominator. It is not possible to write down these pairs of terms as one over another because which way up the fraction is written depends on the measures one is using. Potentiality is always better than capability, which is always better than actuality. But if we are talking about profit, for example, better means more, whereas if we talk about the number of men required to do a job, better means less. The second point to note is that the overall measure of performance is determined by the ratio of actuality and potentiality as being two extremes. This means that capability is floating between them and can change without affecting either. All right, so a lot of definitions here, just a huge dump of definitions and relations. Um, so uh, any, any comments? Uh, questions about this this section okay so uh, consider then the question of what happens to the achievement indices when we go on doing what we have always done note nothing changes in the cost report when the ultimate possibilities remain the same note nothing changes in the corporate view of R&D but where divisional management acts to change the capability 
This it may do by undertaking work-study of processes, negotiating new agreements with the unions, raising the morale or improving the quality of managers, and so forth. Clearly, the overall performance index does not change. What happens is that the latency measure improves, because capability is approaching potentiality, and productivity is lowered. But if, pot if potent management can, in these circumstances, improve the actual performance, as obviously it should, all three measures of achievement will rise. These are the kind of measures we, that we need, and they may be applied in general to divisional performance or in particular to individual activities. They may be applied segmentally to various aspects of work, to the effort of the labor force, for instance, and to the technological capabilities or sorry, capacities of plant. In that case, these segmental indices may subsequently be multiplied together to provide an overall performance measure which is consistent with its direct computation from the raw data. However it is done, and indeed the doing may involve work study and operational research on a considerable scale, the resulting measures are simple and easy to use. After all, all three measures of achievement should be rising. Uh, anything to say about this section? Uh, you know, uh, go ahead, Jeremy. This is a bit mathy, but um, Beer talks about how he actually handles these ratios when they get entered into a computer and says that they're going to get hit with an inverse sine function. Um, and an inverse sine function, the slope gets higher and higher as you get closer to one. And I think it's a normalized inverse sine. So I think like instead of having a ceiling of pi over two, it has a ceiling of one. And he never really says why he did it in Cybersyn, but that, it, oh, everyone agreed that, yeah, hitting this thing with the inverse sign made it work. And so I think it's worth pondering that, people. Like, why did, why were these stats sort of massaged using an inverse sign function? Yeah, that's a very good question. I have no idea. <laughs> Um, he seems is, very... Is the, sine, is the sine function not to squash it into a range? Am I misunderstanding that? Well, it's an inverse sine function. Oh, so okay. inverse sine functions take a number between negative 1 and 1, and then they spit out a number between negative pi over 2 and positive pi over 2. But of course, all these ratios are positive, so it's really between 0 and pi over 2, except it's normalized, so it's between 0 and 1. But for some reason, that smoothing out of the data would, I would say, push things sort of more towards the center so that if people were really coming up with these ratios very close to 1, they would sort of get smoothed down a bit. Hmm, Not sure why I did it. Mm. Okay. Uh, I, I guess if that's the case, it it may just have something to do with the fact that um, these values are always going to be rising, ideally. Uh, and so you might not want to have your indicator kind of crunched, or sorry, uh, crushed up near one. Um, 
it might be easier to track that way. Uh, uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to add that, like, these sort of specific decisions that he makes for various filtering and smoothing, um, it's, on one hand, like, it's good that he's acknowledging it and talking about it, and it is very much the sort of thing that often gets, like, just washed away um, in technical papers, like, when I read things that aren't at all comparable um, as, like, integration or implementation details that don't really have to do much with the actual computation of the things that matter, which in this case would be, like, those metrics. So, like, I do absolutely appreciate that he's very explicit about the fact that you do have to do the massaging and filtering and smoothing pretty much every step of the way. What's missing here is, as you said, like, why? You know, why did he choose this function over another one? And, like, you know, a good analysis would show that, you know, if you use, I don't know, something else, um, that that gives you the sort of performance that you want. I mean, there's clearly something if it... If it is, and you know, I haven't gotten to part four, like, oh, for CyberSyn, this is the thing that worked the best. Like, there was clearly a reason why that performance, like, was better than other things they probably tried. So, like, that's an interesting question in and of itself. But it is, you know, it's part of the integration and implementation details. So I'm glad he's talking about it. But yeah, we still, like, this probably isn't the right place to talk about why all those decisions were, were made there. Right. Um, and I mean, like, you can still, like, go and do, like, A-B testing to decide what is the best way to represent this data. Um, like, it, it, it's not like it's sort of a unique situation lost to time uh, that we can't re-examine uh, to try to figure out. Uh, but it, it is it, it's, it's too bad that, like, uh, it wasn't explained. Um Anyway, uh, let's uh, continue. Um, here we finally detect the manager who is doing most these days to wreck industrial enterprise. He is the irresponsible cost cutter. Note, this does not say that cutting costs is irresponsible. The manager I speak of raises productivity and hopefully profits and thereby acquires a marvelous reputation not by increasing actual achievement, but by lowering capability. He does This he does by squandering his latent resources. He cuts budgets. He lets go valuable men. He fails to implement research results should this involve the slightest effort. Expenditure or risk. Thus, he triumphs as a tough, practical man. In the orthodox scheme of reporting, no measure will reveal the damage he is doing. There is no element in either the profit and loss account or the balance sheet which declares him to be murdering the company's reputation in markets for products, for supplies, or for staff, which may well be needed in a few years' time. The proposed indices do reveal this. Consider what will happen in the case quoted. The manager's productivity will be seen to increase, for indeed it does increase, and that doubtless means that this year's profits will rise. But his latency index will deteriorate, and so probably will his overall performance. So keep your eye on profits in a few years' time. Um, I like this description of the reckless cost cutter. It kind of reminds me of like the modern major general. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, figure 20 died details a few quite dissimilar applications of these achievement measures. 
The examples demonstrate the versatility of the scheme, which could be applied to any endeavor, given suitable definitions of the three initial terms. Here again, it is a useful exercise to contemplate each of the examples in turn, working out for oneself what are the consequences of various possible actions. There could be no argument about the numbers used to measure actuality. There will be severe arguments about the other two sets of numbers. But if we use good operational research, it becomes possible to gain agreement that the numbers used are sensible and the process of investigation and discussion is itself highly beneficial. What matters is that capability and potentiality measures, though somewhat arbitrarily fixed, cannot then be arbitrarily changed, as, you know, is so common in, uh, uh, you know, state socialism, right? Uh, constantly changing the numbers uh, so you, you didn't lose your job or get your head cut off or shot or whatever. Um, <clears throat> um Hence, all, hence, although the absolute values of the productivity and latency indices provide only approximate assessments, movements of these indices over time provide the information that we really need. So it's, it's really the directionality uh, of your vector that matters um, when someone else is reviewing the data or when you're reviewing it for your uh, for your personal uh, use in a system one. Um, so uh, we can look at these examples in figure 29 maybe. Um, uh, so the first one is um, setting general divisional targets. Uh, and in the inputs are uh, 40,000 pounds actuality 60,000 pounds capability and 100,000 pounds potentiality. Uh, so the productivity measure is uh, 40 over 60, uh, 0.67. Uh, so it's they're doing 0.67 of their uh, potential productivity, uh, which would be unity. Um, and then uh, they have the latency measure, which is 60 over 100 or 0.6, uh, which is, um, the, yeah, the, that's the uh, capability over the potentiality. Uh, then you go on, multiply latency by productivity, uh, and you get 0.4, um, which is your... Now, what's that final metric that, what did he call that? Performance? Yeah. Y yeah, that's performance. Your, that's your 40,000 versus 100,000. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that all makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, uh, there's also on the left-hand side of this diagram, uh, normative planning being the highest, potentiality, uh, planning by objectives or strategic planning being the middle one, and then uh, programming being uh, tactics or tactical and that being the lowest one. So just showing that, you know, uh, the reason why these numbers are laid out in the way they are on the diagram. Um, okay, so th the, the next one uh, is monitoring technical performance in units per hour. 
And then the final one is monitoring labor performance, uh, men required on the job, which I guess is uh, in more modern parlance like workforce utilization uh, or employment. Um, like, I guess if you're talking about your overall uh, workforce and then how many should be on a shift uh, or how many shifts you need to have, it would be this kind of question. Uh, Shane, go ahead. I'm thinking back to the time we were talking to Tom O'Brien about uh, planning and labor time calculation. And I really want to see uh, an application of this kind of model of potentiality, capability, and actuality applied to that sort of thing, or just, just like see those things integrated into each other. Um, so it feels like there's, there's really, um, it feels like some of what Stafford is kind of talking around here is this kind of like, you know, labor values sort of stuff, but it's not. It's not really explicit, or maybe it's not even explicit for him. It's just kind of implicit. Um, I'd love to see this properly marxified, you know? Well, I think um, it's less the case that Beer is not talking about labor time, and it's more the case that Cockshot uh, collapses the multidimensional nature of Neurath's uh, planning method into the various input and output, or sorry, the various input values, the material balances in linear programming. So you're saying like, Cockshot sort of says, because you have different kinds of things, because you are planning in Natura, you are therefore kind of doing a more rich and multidimensional form of plan than uh, a simple costing uh, through uh, monetary profit and loss would do. Uh, but I think what Beer's proposing here is actually closer to what Neuraf was trying to say in terms of like having a system of planning that really does take into account quite distinct uh, metrics, mm-hmm. uh, which, which sure. labor time planning doesn't. Um, you need to have like a separate system which is going to uh, adjust labor time planning in terms of sort of like a broader comprehension of reality. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so Rudy, you had something to say, go ahead. Yeah. Thinking of this and like, like you're saying, Cockshot really contracts all this against a single number, which is, it's a different number, but it is a single number. And, you know, something like the Jason Moore analysis of at least like four types of flows in the sense of, nature, labor, food, and I don't remember the other one. I feel like that would be such a massive improvement over just a single number. But then again, the advantage of collapsing to a single number is that then you don't have to make decisions, right? It's just a single number. When you have three or four, you have to pon- somehow ponder them. Yeah, It well, you know, in, in Cockshot's scheme, you get the labor time accounting and then you have a democratic uh, body elected by sortition that reviews uh, packages or sorry, uh, baskets of different goods uh, or different production plans, essentially, and uses like their kind of like more rich um, cognitive capabilities to revise or like to choose between different combinations of, 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 of outcomes. Um so it can't 
Like even Cockshaw acknowledges that it cannot be reduced simply to uh, minimizing or like improving labor productivity, uh, the least labor for the most product. Um, so there will be disagreement, but the multidimensional nature of the thing is kind of post hoc, whereas this is kind of operating on both sides. And that's that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, and it, it does sort of rhyme with what Neurath was saying about how you need all of these different kinds of do democratic bodies uh, that have their own sort of concerns and their own ways of life, and they need to be able to evaluate production in terms of their own values to have an actually democratic planning system, um, which kind of like, you know, overlaps with the idea of system one autonomy. Um, yeah, cool. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting idea. Um, anything further to say about this section? Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, these three metrics and their ratios are so strange that you kind of wish that there were detailed case histories of using those metrics and what happened when they did. You know, if if we, if any of us were to become resident Stafford beer experts and consult with a company that wanted to use the Stafford beer method, would we push these metrics? And if so, what would happen? Like, those are really unknown questions. I mean, what we might want to do is something parallel. We use a more traditional approach on top of this and see which one gives better metrics, you know, sort of an A-B switch kind of testing. But the fact that this was used in CyberSyn at every level of recursion is really, really interesting. And I see nothing in the literature. Eden Medina doesn't talk about this. I've seen nothing in the literature about how well did these metrics work at analyzing a multi-step recursive system. I'm fascinated to know what happened. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we're running up on time. Uh, so quick comments. Uh, sorry, I went so long. Uh, Brett, uh, Matt, and then Shane. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm curious about that too, because I'm not convinced we can always calculate what the potential at productivity even is, especially in like software or other fields. That's always been a tricky thing in terms of figuring out what even is productivity in those fields. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's a classic problem, well known. Um, so, yeah, even the process of calculation estimation, what is the or what are the operation research methods that Beer is alluding to here? Uh, all that stuff is very interesting. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, like, uh, I, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the section was, uh, 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 I, I had a complicated re reaction to it. Because on the one end, you know, like, uh, you know, the, you know, like in Cybernetic Revolutionaries, you know, it just sort of alludes, it just sort of alludes to, uh, um, you know, the, the KPIs and how, you know, they spent months, you know, figuring them out. And it figured, oh, you know, like beer has to have like a, a method for doing this. And, uh, uh, you know, so it was cool to actually see it or, you know, at least uh, part of it. But also like, oh, like this seems a little, but I guess like, 
you know, the fact that it's so abstract also kind of makes sense because, you know, that means that you can apply it to more or less anything. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, certain kinds of work actually maybe even don't even ma manifest, like, in a way that you can measure directly with these. Like, uh, I, I imagine, um, uh, um, so for, 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 like, differences between actuality and potential, I imagine a lot of that, like, uh, um, you know, the investigations will point to, like, bottlenecks and maybe, like, uh, um, you don't measure, like, IT or software stuff. Um, um, you know, uh, you know, like in terms of like lines of code, uh, uh written or, or features delivered or anything, but you know, um, your, your IT systems that are, that are reducing bottlenecks and like other things. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, Shane, I believe, I don't know. It was somebody mentioned that beer suggests that these need to be set by the system ones themselves. Uh, and so you're not going to end up with a metric like lines of code because coders just wouldn't do that. You know, that's, that's a, that's a man, that's, that's something a manager would do that doesn't understand coding and would, uh, just be desperate to come up with a measurement that th they can use to discipline the workforce. Um, but what the metrics would be is something I'd be very interested in. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it is. Uh, it certainly comes up in beer. I think that these need to be set by the system ones themselves, or or like negotiated with the between the system one and the and the higher system. Um, and yeah, from my experience in working in software, there's a there's a lot of stuff that's extremely hard to quantify. Like when we're when we're doing planning for like feature development or for like prioritization of like oh, should we do feature development or should we work on shoring up the compile servers or stuff like that? It, it's all very kind of back of the napkin sort of stuff, just like, you know, sticking our finger in the air and going, hmm, which way the wind's blowing. Um, so I feel like if, if you're running a steel plant that's just cranking out crates and crates of steel, it's pretty fucking easy to measure them. You just look at the things. But um, there's all kinds of systems in the economy that I don't think are as amenable to this kind of... Um, exact analysis you'd, you'd have to kind of like fudge the numbers or like invent kind of metrics to, to help yourself out there um on the topic of uh case studies and such we probably need to look at more of uh the stuff that raul espeo wrote later um, i think some of his books have more of that kind of like you know in-depth sort of stuff plus he you know he's still alive we could just email him <laughs> and ask uh, some of this sort of stuff as well yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a possibility. We should, we should definitely uh, he's, do he's, that. He's probably the world expert on this this stuff, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, before he before he grows, right? You know. Yeah. No. Let's let's get on that this week. Um. Uh. Brett. Uh. Go ahead. Oh wait, I didn't mean to lose my hand. Sorry. Okay. All right. So that's going to do it for this session. Uh. Thank you, everybody, uh, for participating. Uh. Next week we will move on to chapter twelve. Um, probably cover the first half of that. Uh, so thank you, and I'll see you next week. See you, see you everybody. Thanks, yeah. everyone. Bye-bye.